Sorry, it seems like a bit of an anti-climax. <laughs> I apologize. Um, so I'm going to start with, I don't have much more time to give you any um, bad pregnancy stories because the baby is due pretty soon. So I'm going to, and they work well for illustrations. Um, so I'll just tell you this one and that I'm looking forward to Tuesday because on Tuesday our dog food is getting delivered. And that sounds like an ordinary day and there's nothing magical about this dog food. We just get it at a discounted rate so it gets delivered. And, um, but there's something quite special about this particular packet. And that's that Jono lost a bet a few weeks ago. And it was an empathy bet. And so what happened is it was something that, I don't know, this is what married couples do when you can't go out because you've got a kid that's sleeping. Uh, well, we did. Um, but yeah, so we, he, we were kind of talking about something. I'm sorry, I'm just going to put my timer on because I'm also starting trying to stick to time tonight. Um, so, so we, yeah, he was wrong and I was right, which is fantastic. I can say that because he's not here. Um, and so I, usually it's like a cup of coffee or something quite stupid, like I'll make you coffee in bed tomorrow morning or whatever. But then I just had this great idea and I was like, you know what? Like, I just want him for a moment to feel what it's like to be me. And so what we're gonna do is when the dog food comes, we're gonna strap it to his stomach and for an hour or two, he has to walk around the house performing normal tasks, but just with, you know, that extra packs um, strapped to him. So Tuesday is going to be interesting. I might post some photos. Um, but there's something about, you know, it's not, he's actually been fantastic. He's been a very supportive husband. I've told you that. Um, and so I'm not feeling any anger towards him. This isn't therapy. Um, it, it's just that I kind of want him to see things from my perspective. I want him just to feel for a little bit what it feels like. And also a few weeks ago, it was just before Easter, and he was sitting in bed and he was eating an Easter egg and drinking milk, and I can't eat after six o'clock, otherwise I want to get sick. And so he's sitting on the bed and he, and he says to me, are you all right? And so I just, I was grumpy, and yeah, and so I just looked at him, and I went over and I just said, I am not all right. I'm not going to be all right until this baby comes out. I don't feel okay, and I'm not going to feel okay until this baby comes out. And he just looked at me a little bit confused. He said, I just said, do you want to bite? And he was offering me a bite of his Easter egg. <laughs> so that one, he just laughed at me. I looked like a complete fool. Um, <laughs> but seeing, sometimes seeing things from someone else's perspective can actually be quite helpful. And so this series, Through the Eyes, is actually a very helpful series because I don't know if you're anything like me, you read the Bible from a certain perspective, but there's so much richness to it. Um, there's so many different that God chooses to include in his story and in his plan. And I often try and picture things from God's perspective or from Jesus' perspective when he was on earth. And um, the two of the, the big ones for me is always Adam and Eve, where I kind of get angry with them for bringing sin into the world, when actually we would have been just the same. And we don't see things from their, their perspective. We kind of make them the, the baddies in the story. And the same when it comes to the Easter stories, that I always kind of see things through Jesus' eyes. But there were many things happening with the disciples that we can learn from. And the amazing thing with the disciples is that they kind of represent humanity and humanity's response. And actually, we can relate quite closely to them because if you think about it, um, we are followers and we are disciples of Jesus. And so um, we're just going to look at a few of the scriptures that really point out what they were doing and what they were processing and how they were going about things. And to really understand it, I think we need to look at kind of the climate and what had happened before, because we're going to be looking at the road to the cross and how, how it was through the disciples' eyes. But before then, I think it is quite helpful to look at what the world was like for them. 
and what was happening. And firstly, if we look between the two testaments, some people call it the silent years because um, you have the Old Testament and you have 400 years before the New Testament is written, before Jesus came. And in that time, there's, there seems to be very like, little spiritual activity. And I don't know about you, but if you've just had God, if you've ever had a, a moment in your life where you felt like God has been silent, um, those have definitely been the lowlights of my life, where you feel like maybe there's been a reason, maybe there hasn't. You just don't feel like you've heard God. Um, but often that's a spiritually dead place. And often it's a place where your heart can either become hard, you can kind of become anxious, you can become indifferent. And think about 400 years of no huge activity in terms of um, that, that was recorded um, in God's word. And, and so it was a quite a spiritually dry place. And think about also in the workplace. If you go to a place where there just aren't people who know and love God and passionately serve him, think about just how that can seem like such a spiritually dry place. Now, now take 400 years of, of very little activity, and that's what would have been, it would have been like. That is what the world that Jesus and the disciples were born into. But hope hadn't been lost. And in those times, it also wasn't uncommon to be a disciple. The political leaders of the day had disciples, the philosophers had disciples, the spiritual leaders had disciples. And so you see that the Pharisees had some, John the Baptist even had some, um, and a lot of the revolutionary movements had disciples. So when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, he's not calling them to something that's totally obscure and creating this new kind of um, label. It's something that was quite common, but I think these guys had no idea what Jesus was really calling them to. And in fact, a lot of what they say indicates that they had no idea who this was that was calling them. So before we look at the journey to the cross, let's just look at a, little, a few of the things that they would have experienced alongside Jesus, watching him. And in Jesus' early ministry, once he had called his disciples and um, once some of them were walking with him, you see him do a variety of things. You see him performing miracles, some beautiful ones for the first time. You see him teaching. You see him teaching them what it means to be saved. He calls them to follow him. And so amazingly, he takes authority over the spiritual realm. So all of a sudden, he can speak to the demonic, and it has to obey and submit to him. And so it just shows that he has all power. Now think about it in those days when, when it's been very religious and dead and dry. To see someone like Jesus doing all these things, just how out of the box that would have been. But then Jesus also starts doing a few obscure things. Things that are slightly offensive, like healing on the Sabbath day and in healing in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And then he starts preaching a slightly different way, where he, where he just, the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says things that are totally contrary to what people have been hearing. He's been, people have been doing things in their own strength, in their own might, and when you lift your own devices, you do whatever feels good. And he's showing a completely different way. And then he starts speaking in parables. And if you've ever read a parable and it's hit your heart, there's something about parables that just brings about spiritual truth. And if you think about the dead teaching that they would have been receiving, the way they had maybe even just been reading um, scriptures and just understanding them in, in, in a very dry and religious manner. And now Jesus all of a sudden explains these spiritual realities to them. And then all of a sudden the miracles even seem to get bigger if you track them, where, where all of a sudden now Jesus calms the storm. 
He has power over nature. Think about it. You're on a boat. There's this wild storm all around you. You think that you're going to drown. You think you might die. And even the wind and the waves listen to him. And they start to wonder, who is this? You see how he takes authority over the demonic and, and sends it into a herd of swine. But the thing is that people should be more and more attracted to Jesus. But for some of the disciples, not the 12, but the greater discipleship around, they start to leave. And I don't know if the novelty had worn off. I don't know if what he was saying was just getting too hard for them. But, but some choose to desert Jesus. And so he says to his, his um, 12, he says this in John 6, um, he says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And such an amazing affirmation of them going like, our eyes are actually being opened to who you are we don't want to leave you he gave them the out he said you know don't do you want to go too and, and they said no like this is what we want to do and almost reaffirmed that they wanted to remain disciples that they were seeing the truth but on the side there's trouble brewing and jesus starts speaking about how you must be killed <clears throat> and then he um then then all of a sudden he starts he starts offending the pharisees because he's exposing their hearts and i think it would be a threat if you think of um just leaders and, and good leaders and how in the midst of good leadership bad leaders feel threatened and almost just become even worse and that's probably what it was like for the Pharisees they want to stone him um, he's kind of showing them up for who they are he's teaching them he's even teaching <coughs> in the in the temples and and for them that was an offensive thing who does this man think he is and again Jesus starts speaking about his death and in a beautiful act Mary anoints his feet, and you just see this beautiful um, action of someone who just acknowledges Jesus as king, as something that is just so un someone who's so worthy of worship, when the rest of the world is trying to plot, to, well, the rest of the, the known world is trying to plot to kill him. And so starts the journey to the cross. And we look at the beginning the, of, of it in the triumphal entry. And this one's always been a baffling one to me because I think, how can you, just a week before crucifying Jesus, how could people do this where they just worshipped him? But for the disciples, it must have been a very interesting experience. Because if, you, if you're part of um, any, I mean, I don't know about you, but I love part, being part of a winning side um, or a team or that's doing well, whatever. I was just thinking back to school and how fun it was to be part of, um, you know, inter-house stuff and if your house won, and there's something nice about being part of the victory. And I think the disciples must have probably felt a little bit of, of joy or affirmation that people were seeing who Jesus was, because this is, this is what happens. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey colt. But then as I, was, as I was preparing, I noticed that obscure verse, which I actually haven't really noticed before. And it shows the disciples' response in this situation. It says, At first his disciples did not understand all this. 
Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. And it's so interesting to just see how um, they, they're part of it. They're almost part of this, just seeing Jesus being, being welcomed and treated like a hero, yet they're actually not understanding it. And they only connect the dots a little bit later. And then as, as time is drawing to a close, as Jesus' teaching time is drawing to a close, he becomes even more radical. He goes and he clears the temple. He drives out the vendors. And his teachings even seem to become more radical, where he speaks about end times. He speaks about the parable of the Great Supper and the two sons. And then people start to come and test him. The Pharisees test him. The Sadducees do. The, the lawyers do. And so all of a sudden... His enemies, that line in the sand has been drawn, and people are becoming hostile towards him. But Jesus doesn't lose momentum. He just starts speaking truth after truth. You see his last actions as he weeps over the city. He weeps for the people. We, he talks about the sheep and the goats. And for the disciples, this must have been so significant, just seeing the passion in Jesus, seeing him speaking truths that are harsh yet true, seeing him weep over the city imagine that wouldn't have been a emotion like that wouldn't have been something that the pharisees and the sadducees had for people but jesus was just showing such compassion and then we get to the passover in matthew 26 and some interesting things happen there on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread the disciples came to jesus and asked where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the passover he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And if you put yourself in the disciples' place, even the way this whole meal was orchestrated, where they were told to go somewhere and someone would meet them, Jesus still had this godly insight. And they didn't at this time doubt him. They just followed his instructions. They had learned to do that. And that was so amazing. You can see that they emotionally connected to Jesus because when he talks about one of you will betray me, it actually saddens them. This isn't just someone that they've hung out with and think is, you know, pretty cool. There's this deep connection to Jesus. They've seen him do all these things for three years. 
they've been alongside him. And so the concept of someone betraying him actually saddens them. And then this, this whole idea of a Passover meal that they would have experienced so many times in their life, yet this one becomes a prophetic meal. Jesus isn't just giving a glimpse backwards into what had happened. He's giving a glimpse forward. He's showing them what the future is going to be like in future when you have this meal. It must have been rather confusing to them because they still don't understand what's about to happen. We see that from the questions they're asking. But they have this intimate, beautiful meal with Jesus where he's saying, remember me when you do this. And then as part of that, Jesus also begins to wash his disciples' feet. We see that in John. And there's a great switch there where, if you think about it, the master never washes the disciples' feet. And that's usually the job for the slaves or, or the lowly. But, but Jesus switches it all around and still he's blowing their mind. He's blowing their whole concept of, of who he is right to the end. He's teaching love and servanthood at the end of his life as things are drawing to a close. What a beautiful picture for the disciples. And we also just get a clue that for them it would have probably been a highly emotional meal. Because for them, Jesus uses words of comfort. In John 14, he speaks about the Holy Spirit and what's going to happen. And he says these words. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. And so Jesus is almost just showing that, that he's not going to be leaving them, that one day they will be together. And those are words that wouldn't have made complete sense to them, but they would have probably served as comfort, even if they didn't make sense. And you can see from the questions that he then gets asked that they're still not getting it. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know we are going, so how can we know the way? Do you think after if you read the New Testament, if you read the, the time that the disciples have, have been with him and the teachings they've been exposed to, for him to say, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus was continually speaking about how he was the way. And, and so it just shows that there's still confusion in their heart, that things just aren't making sense. Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. But Jesus has spoken about how, you know, they are one. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And so at this point, I actually find myself feeling quite sorry for the disciples because they've had this huge teaching entrusted to them. They've seen so much of God come down in the flesh, yet it, they're just, it's just going to get a little bit worse because we know how the story is going to go. And then in John chapter 17, we, we see how Jesus takes his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And for me, this is a very hard scripture to read because this is almost the one time where Jesus seems to need them, the disciples, a little bit more because we see that Jesus is battling with genuine grief and genuine emotion. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch for me. And then what happens? The disciples fall asleep. And then he comes back to them and he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what do they do? They fall asleep. And then he returns and he says to them, are you still sleeping and resting? 
Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And at that point, that is almost their last genuine interaction with Jesus, as far as they know. Because remember, they don't kind of know what's going to happen with the resurrection and their time with Jesus afterwards. So these are their last moments of Jesus, and they've spent them sleeping when he actually needed them. Because the Bible tells us that after that, the disciples deserted him and fled. They had no choice. They were running for their lives. And that's where we just see the the tragedy and the confusion and the pain that they must have gone through in that time. If you think about it, how just in terms of friendships, when, when things happen that challenge your friendships, when, when maybe you have fallouts or there's distance between you and just that, that pain and regret that you might have, they would have had that because those were their mo last moments as, they, as his disciple. And it must have been quite a tragic end to their story, even though it wasn't the end. And it just seems to me that they, they almost were on a seesaw of, of knowing God, of choosing to follow him, where they, they had promised their lives to Jesus as disciples. And so sometimes it was up. Other times they, they just showed that they were still absolutely, in some ways, clueless. And so it was a very strange reality that the disciples kind of walked, especially on the road to the cross. And things through their perspective must have been quite challenging. And as I was looking back on just those incidents, I just thought of a few things that I jotted down and just, um, they, they continually saw till the end, Jesus proving himself as God come down. They saw revelation. They had a privilege and a knowledge that few people in the world in those days had. And so things were, <clears throat> at that point, were clear yet unclear. And I kind of thought of it as an eye test. If we were seeing it through the eyes of the disciple, I don't know if any of you have been to those eye tests. I find them quite challenging. I just get stressed. Um, but, <clears throat> but for the disciples, it, it was almost like some things were so clear and so like, they just could not doubt the miracles he did, the demons he drove out, what he did. But there were other things that just seemed like the last line where it just wasn't making sense. But they stayed honoring of Jesus as their, as their Lord and Master. They continued to learn from him to the end. But despite their belief, they had doubt. Just remember that they denied him, Judas betrayed him, um, but they didn't have unbelief. And there's a difference between having doubt and unbelief. Doubt is something that you can have, and it's just saying that I'm battling, I'm battling to believe. Whereas unbelief rejects it and says, I won't believe. So they were battling with doubt. They had many unanswered questions still. They didn't have everything crystal clear, and they still don't fully understand what's going on. I also just noticed how they weren't, like you always see cult leaders and how they, they brainwash their followers, but Jesus hadn't done that. They were still who they were. They still showed their character flaws. They still showed their passion and their zeal. They still showed their love. They were humans who Jesus chose to disciple, and they had challenges like you and I. Sometimes they were apathetic. We see that when they were praying in the garden, when Jesus was praying and they were sleeping. And sometimes they went into self-preservation mode where they just ran and hid and didn't die with Jesus. But God hadn't finished with them yet and the truth was gonna be revealed and we're gonna carry on with that next week. But I was just thinking as, a, as we conclude, like what can we learn from seeing things from their perspective? What, what kind of truths can we take home? And the one thing that I was thinking is that, you know, in life, when the, when the disciples fell asleep, 
and that was their mo last moment of, of time with Jesus, I was kind of thinking what that would be like, that despair of just having to hear everything about their, their savior, their best friend, their master, their Lord, secondhand because they were in hiding, and just knowing that in their last moments with him they had slept, they'd let him down a bit. And just that sadness and that sorrow of, of falling asleep on duty. And I just thought, you know, for us as Christians, we can often miss out on the best when it comes to God because we become apathetic. We've fallen asleep. We haven't listened to what he said. And just that we don't actually know if that's going to be our last moment with Jesus, our last chance. And so to take every day and every opportunity, every minute, that we have an opportunity to respond to God's voice seriously. And then I also thought about others around me, that do I have a, a real um, zeal for the lost and a passion for those who have also either fallen asleep or never woken up in him? Do I have that desperation? Because that might be the last chance someone has to respond to the gospel. That might be the last um, Thing that they ever hear about God and am I passionately sharing the truth or have I fallen asleep and then the other thing which I think is is probably a bit more significant is is just that the disciples did have their doubts and I can really relate to that and the question is for all of you is what what do you do when God doesn't fit into your box because as Christians we have the strange reality where we know the truth well, there's certain things that we know about God. We know his word has never failed, that all his promises are true. But so often God doesn't fit into that box. And um, I love that quote, and I think I've used it before, where it goes, um, life can only be understood backwards, but unfortunately it has to be lived forwards. And that's a reality that we as humans have to face, that we have to live life forwards. And we do have, we have the privilege of walking it with God, but sometimes it's not enough. And I think the disciples had that tension of they knew certain things about God, yet they doubted others and things didn't make sense. And what is your response in those times? What are you doing um, when you're facing doubt, when you're facing challenges in your belief, when, you, when you're hitting those hard times and those low times? Jesus said this to his response to John the Baptist. John was in prison. He sends, um, he sends word to ask Jesus, you know, are you, are you God? Are you who you say you are? Or should we expect someone else? And he says this. He says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Blessed is someone who doesn't stumble on account of me. There are many things, if you live life at a ripe old age and you walk closely with God, that are going to challenge your belief, that are going to make you stumble, that is going to hurt you, that's going to leave you bruised and battered. But the beautiful promise that Jesus says is, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And I just want to challenge you to, in those times, choose to cling to God. We have a huge privilege in that we see the rest of the story that the disciples didn't. We see how Jesus rose from the dead. We even have revelation. We know how it's all going to end. God is faithful and true. And are you going to cling to him in those times? Are you going to cling to his promises and who he is? And that is the best place to be when God isn't making sense, is sticking close to him and hearing his word. We're going to be going into a time of worship, so if the team can come up, and I'm just going to end in prayer. But if you feel like you need any ministry into the, that space of just doubt, unbelief, um, fear, feeling like you're battling to hold on to God's promises, feeling like you actually can relate to the disciples who, who battled with unbelief sometimes, who, 
sometimes did in the sense let God down, then you can just come and find one of the pastors, find a spiritually mature friend, one of the elders. There's so many people here who would love to pray with you and minister into that. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the disciples and what they can teach us. We thank you that we can see things through their perspective and relate to their humanity and some of the struggles that people often have in following you. But Lord, we thank you for their example. We thank you that there was a big picture here and that there's always hope in you. Lord, we pray for our hearts when things don't make sense, when we can't see what you're doing and we don't necessarily understand. May in those times we cling to your word May we cling to your truth. May we cling to who you are. Lord, I pray for anyone who is feeling great hurt and disappointment. May you reveal your heart to them as a loving God. We thank you for the patience that you had with the disciples and how you continue to teach them. Lord, continue to teach us. We want our hearts to be open to you, Lord. And as we move into a time of worship, Lord, I pray that you'll just also minister to us as, as we praise and worship you, as we choose to worship you, the God of all truth, the God of all gods. What a privilege to come and worship you, Lord. We thank you for these moments and we just invite you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that we have you as our helper to come alongside us. We praise you for who you are. Amen.